Today we're going to continue our Stronger series, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2, so it's a little letter towards the back of the Bible. You have to use the table of contents, uh, that's totally fine, there's no judgment here. So 1 John chapter 2, and last week we talked about how when Jesus called his first followers to follow him, he did not call them just to behave better, right? He didn't just call them to believe a certain set of doctrines and sign off on a document saying that, hey, I believe these things. And he didn't call them to be religious. Instead, he called them to enter into a life of discipleship. And to be a disciple is to be an apprentice of your teacher, okay? So to be an apprentice of Jesus, uh, specifically, is to become like him and do the things that he would do if he were you, okay? So if Jesus was a 35-year-old single mom with three kids, right? What would he do? That's the question you have to ask if that's you, right? And then you try to live like Jesus would live if he were you. So our vision here at Ascent is, is to raise up a people who are apprentices of Jesus. We want to raise up a bunch of little Christ and send them to the Cedar Valley. And this isn't easy, though, in our culture to do this. We, uh, right now, we live in a culture, uh, or the Western and American culture, that kind of makes it difficult to become like Jesus. Our, our culture entices us with temptations like idolatry and individualism and consumerism. And while Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him, our culture tells us that, or that we are the center of the universe and that we simply exist to fulfill our own desires, even if they lead to destruction. And while Jesus calls us to be committed to one another and to love one another in deep relationships and truly do life together, our culture tells us that, hey, we don't need other people. We can do life on our own. And while Jesus calls us to lay down our lives so that others can know him, our culture tells us not to do anything that's uncomfortable and simply consume. You are simply a consumer. If we're going to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ in the West, we need a discipleship culture in our church, hearts, and homes that is simply stronger than the culture of the world. And we believe we can step into this culture when we commit ourselves to living a life centered around three things. Those three things are, are worshiping Jesus, belonging to a community of believers, and living on mission. If we're gonna create a stronger way of discipleship, our worship has to be stronger than idolatry. Our community has to be stronger than individualism. And our mission has to be stronger than consumerism. And this week, we're gonna look specifically at how our worship can be stronger than idolatry. And this was a fun one. Like I said, I wrestled this baby to the ground. So 1 John chapter two, there's so much I could have said about it. And I had to try to get it to fit within a sermon. Okay, it could have been a book. But 1 John 2, uh, 15 through 17 says, do not love the thing or do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father or the love of God is not in him. And for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, so the sermon title is Worship Over idolatry. All right, let's pray over this. So Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, and we pray that you would speak, God. I pray that every heart would be touched by your love today, and that you would call us out of idolatry 
and into worship. Help us to be a people who are just on fire for you with love and passion. So God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. I got some allergies, so if my voice sounds weird, that's why, okay? So, okay, so when I was in the second grade, there was, or there were two nice girls, and I wanted both of them to be my girlfriend. And they were best friends, and they both wanted to be my girlfriend as well, so it worked out well for me. I thought long and hard about who I would choose, and I decided I just couldn't choose between the two of them. So I devised a way not to have to choose. I simply asked them both if they would both be okay with being my girlfriend at the same time. I mean, what's wrong with second grade polygamy, right? There's no problem with that. And they actually agreed, I was surprised, and decided to both be my girlfriend. I remember sitting on the playground with my arm around both of them, like, what's up? I remember that vividly. However, it only lasted for an afternoon as they realized they did not want to share me. They had a come to Jesus moment and said, you gotta choose one of us. So these girls were simply reflecting an attribute of the God who created them. Okay, so scripture tells us that God is a jealous God. He doesn't like sharing us with idols. In the book of Exodus, God caused Israel to abstain from idol worship, and he says this in chapter 20. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay, so God desperately wants to keep us, or keep us from idolatry. And we've all struggled with this. Uh, John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York City, he defines idolatry this way. He says, idolatry is the worship of an unworthy object. And we've all struggled to worship unworthy objects. And you may be thinking this morning, you may be thinking, hey, this sermon's not for me. Like the idea of bowing down before statues sounds kind of silly to you. And that's not something you've struggled with in your lifetime. If that's you, I just want to propose that your, or that your definition of idolatry is simply too narrow. In the book of Ezekiel, some of the elders of Israel go to Ezekiel, who is a prophet, and they're trying to get a word from him, a word from the Lord, and this is what Ezekiel says. Well, this is what God says to Ezekiel. It says, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces, and should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Okay, so God said that these elders, they had set up idols in their hearts. He wasn't talking about statues. He was talking about idols of the heart. Their hearts were bent towards something other than God. Something of this world had become an object of their worship. Okay, Tim Keller, he, he commentates on this passage in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is incredible. You should read it. It says this, God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career or love or material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. Okay, so idolatry is when we choose to worship God's gifts instead of God himself. It's when we worship the creation instead of the creator. Okay, so in the New Testament, when we're writing about Gentiles who had given themselves over to idol worship, Paul says this. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up in the, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the uh, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. Okay, so by giving themselves over to idolatry, they rejected truth and worshiped the creature and not the creator. And this led to God, and this led God to give them up over to their sinful desires. He let them have what they wanted, right? They wanted the things of this world. They, they wanted to be consumed by the things of this world, and God let them have that. I worry that this, that this is what's happening in the West right now, okay? We keep on giving ourselves over to idols, and then we wonder why our society keeps decaying. In the book of Acts, Luke tells the story of how the church expanded into the, into the Greco-Roman Greco-Roman, Greco-Roman world. <laughs> Try saying that fast. Each city worshipped its, its favorite deities, and they built shrines around their images of worship, or for worship. And when Paul was in Athens, he saw that it was filled with these images. There were just these images of these idols and these gods all around him. And he no doubt saw images of Aphrodite and Ares and Artemis and more, Right? And people thought that these gods could give them success in love, war, and fertility, and fertility if they offered the right sacrifices to them. Our, our society is not that different from Athens. Okay, we may not have shrines, but we have office buildings, gyms, and stadiums that promise us life. And we stare at images on our phones that cause us to long for beauty, power, money, and achievement. Think about all the time you spend staring at images and videos on your cell phones. I'm sure you're beating the people of Athens in the amount of time you spend staring at images that aren't God. Just yesterday, uh, my family was out to eat at a restaurant, very nice restaurant called McDonald's, and uh, <laughs> I said restaurant to make it sound better than my, I'm just gonna tell them, we're at McDonald's, it was delicious. And, uh, <laughs> And Emily could not help but just notice there was a father close by, and, and he had his daughter, just him and his daughter, and the entire meal, he's staring at his phone. His daughter's probably five years old, just, or just sitting there in silence. It was devastating to, or to watch this. The entire meal, he stared at his phone when his beautiful gift of a daughter was sitting across from him. I don't mean to judge. Maybe something was going on that was really important, but it seems to me that he's been sacrificing his daughter at the altar of entertainment. And the worst part about this is followers of Jesus have joined right in. Like we offer spiritual sacrifices to the gods of our cultures by giving, or the gods of our culture by giving our time, attention, and affection to them. And we spend more time on our phones watching TV and scrolling social media than we do reading our Bibles and praying. And then we say, I don't have any time to do that. And we spend more time on those things than we do engaging with other believers and building the church. I think... Quite a few of us spend more money on subscriptions and stuff we don't need than we do giving to missions and the poor. And we waste our best energy on things that that don't even matter while God is waiting for us to leverage our lives to productively contribute to the world and build his kingdom. And when Paul saw the idols of Athens, it says this in the book of Acts. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Like the idols, they provoked his spirit. They caused his spirit to turn with holy angst. Instead of being provoked by the idols of our culture and seeking to tear them down, we've bowed to the idols along with our culture. And it's killing us. It's killing the church, and it's killing our society. 
Idolatry is killing society in the church. If we wanna be faithful to Jesus, we must tear down these idols. He must be primary in our hearts. He can't, like, here's the thing, if you wanna follow Jesus, he can't just be part of your life. That's not an option. He can't just be like a little part of the pie chart. Like, okay, I have this pie chart of my life, he gets this little part. He must be your supreme desire. I think that old Backstreet Boys song that I loved as a kid, it's called, I Want It That Way. You are my fire, the one desire. That's how it starts. You are my fire. You don't know it? Come on. I thought we were all gonna sing in here and then you just left me hanging like that. Come on, it ain't cool. I'm done. I'm just kidding. But uh, So Jesus, he must be our fire, right? He must be our one desire. Our hearts must burn with love for him. And this is the way to life. It's not an obligation. It's an invitation. It's the way to life. Jesus wants all of us. And he won't stop until he has it all. He does not want to share us with anyone else. He doesn't want you to have your arm around him and then something else, right? He doesn't want you to have two girlfriends, so to speak. In fact, Jesus said it's impossible for us to truly love him and serve other things at the same time. said this in Matthew 6. It says, no one can serve two masters. This is Jesus. And he goes on, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in, in money. Okay, you cannot serve God in money. You can't serve God in achievement. You can't serve God in popularity. You can't serve God in family. You can't serve God in political party. You can't serve God in sex. You can't serve God in your comfort. You cannot have two masters. If you try to, it's gonna kill you. In Pastor John Tyson's book, The Beautiful Resistance, that I, I quoted earlier, he tells a, a fascinating story about his parents. I guess his parents were like demon slayers growing up. Like, like they would go in and, and cast out devils out of people's lives. It's just, just awesome, right? Like, I want to do more of that. Anyways, so, okay, so when one woman came to him, or came to his father wanting freedom from demons, uh, his parents, they, they struggled for days trying to get this demon to leave, and they couldn't quite figure out how it got access and why it would not go. Eventually, they realized that the access point had been a record that the woman had kept from a previous relationship. Okay, the relationship had been an idol in her life, and the record was something that she had held on to from that relationship. And when they destroyed the record, the demon left. <sighs> Ooh, man, you better start destroying some stuff in your house, I'm just saying. You might have some idols. You might not be bound down to some statues, but you might have some idols in your house that are causing some damage in your life, and you wonder why. Okay, just like this woman, we have to rid ourselves of idols. We have to. Each of us, we need to, uh, to do the work of examining our hearts and seeing if we built any shrines to little G gods, and we need to tear those suckers down. Our ability or our inability to do this will determine how the rest of our lives go. And this is why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we can put God first, and love him first, everything else will fall into place. Beauty and holiness will flow from our lives. Okay, for example, if you love God first, you'll love the people he's created, and you'll steward what he's trusted you with, and you'll wanna use your life to help other people follow him, and you'll leave, or you'll lead a life that actually leads to flourishing, both for you and for those around you. 
On the other hand, if you worship a created thing, sin and destruction will flow in your wake. Okay, for instance, if you love money more than God, you'll be given over uh, to greed and to neglecting your family to make more of it. And you'll disobey God and hurt other people to get more of it. Or if you love sex more than God, you'll engage in it outside of the loving, safe parameters that he set up in marriage. And this will lead to havoc not only in your life, but in the lives of those around you. Idolatry tears at the very fabric of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's the enemy's chief strategy to pull us away from God and his plan for our lives. In our teaching text today, in 1 John 2, John urges the church to run from idolatry. He says, do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, don't get John wrong here. He's not calling you to hate the world, right? God wants us to love his created order, and he wants us to love the people he's made. It's important to remember that John himself, he wrote the words of John 3.16. He, he quoted Jesus in, in John 3.16, and he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Okay, so we should love God's creation. We should love the good things he's given us, John, he is specifically referring to anything in this world that's opposed to God, anything that sets itself up against God. He's, very, he's referring to the values and systems and ways of living that are under Satan's influence. And for his reader specifically, he's writing to, or to a variety of different churches in the Roman world. Okay, so for his readers, he's referring to, the, or to this world that they're living in that's dominated by idols and false gods. He's urging them, don't get swept up in that world. At the end of his letter, he'll actually end the letter by saying this. This is the last thing he says in the letter. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. That's how he ends the letter. So instead of giving in to the idols of their cities, John wanted them to be like Paul in Athens who wasn't drawn into their seduction but was provoked by them. He wanted to do something about it. He wanted to tear those idols down by, or by leading people into the loving grace of Jesus Christ and seeing their hearts transformed. Okay, John, he goes on to explain what he means by the world in verse 16. He says, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, so John says that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are the things in this world. It's not 100% clear what he means by these three things. It's not super easy to divide them into these neat categories that kind of overlap in some ways, but I want to do my best to define them for you. Okay, so desire of the flesh would be, or it refers to sinful desires that come from our physical appetites. Okay, so this could be, okay, so hear me, human appetites are not inherently wrong. God gave us appetites, right? But if we don't keep them in check, they can cause us to act outside of God's good and perfect parameters for our lives. And they can cause us to give in to sexual immorality or gluttony, substance abuse, anger, and so forth, right? These are the desires of the flesh. The desire of the eyes would refer to the sinful desires from the world around us, okay? So this refers to those things that are activated by the things we see in the world, right? When you're looking at your phone so much, the things that are activated in you by, or by seeing these things in the world, it, it, it could refer to a desire for fame, or fortune, or popularity. And these desires, they, or they cause us to covet and to be greedy and to hurt other people to get what we want. 
Okay, the last thing is the pride of life, which is the sinful attitudes from pride that's activated by pride in oneself. Okay, so this comes from finding our identity and our hope in this life. It can refer to material possessions or the feeling of superiority over other people. Okay, so these are the things of the world according to John. And this is the world that he calls us not to love. It's the world where Satan and our idols rule. It's the world where Jesus isn't Lord yet. And we must keep our hearts free from the parts of the world where he isn't Lord yet. Okay, so the call is to resist the world where Jesus isn't Lord. Okay, resist it. And we must not love the things of the world that are, are in rebellion to Jesus and have yet to come under his lordship. And we must resist the temptation to allow the things of this world, even the best things that are God's gifts, to become our master. And John gives us two reasons why we shouldn't love the things of this world in this sense. And the first is, is the world where Jesus isn't Lord is not from God. Okay, again, I'm gonna say it again. While God's created order is from him and we should enjoy it, uh, the world that's been captivated by idols is not. In the world where good things become ultimate things, it's not from God. Okay, for example, sex and relationships are a gift from God. Okay, when Jesus is Lord, we enjoy sex inside marriage between man and woman. And we enjoy it inside this one flesh bond that God set up, right? However, in the world where Jesus isn't Lord yet, sex can become something that defines us. It, it, it's like the definition of who we are, right? We become defined by who we're attracted to. And we enter into relationships that are not from God. In the world where Jesus isn't Lord, we think that sex without consequence is a right, and it leads to destruction in our lives and in others' lives. Instead of it being something to bind a man and his wife together and for procreation, it simply becomes an act of recreation, which it can be that inside marriage, but it simply becomes that, and it becomes that with whoever we please, right? Whoever we want to do it with. And we'll do whatever it takes to protect this right. We get angry when people threaten this right. All right, was that too real? All right, that's another sermon for another day. All right, another example is money is a gift from God. And when Jesus is Lord, we can use our money to care for others, to provide for our own needs, and to enjoy life. Paul actually talks about that in 1 Timothy 6. He says you can use your money to enjoy life, right? So it's not bad to have pleasure or to enjoy life with your money. However, in the world where Jesus isn't Lord, money can become our master. And accumulating more of it can become our entire life's purpose, right? Our entire like, life's goal is to have a massive retirement account. What? Like, that's what you're living for? How big can I get that account so I feel ultimately secure? It can become, like, your life's purpose can become to buy new stuff, to get that boat, or to get that truck, or to get that new house. That's like your whole purpose in life is possessions. And you refuse when, okay, so when money becomes your Lord, you refuse to give it away, right? You refuse to be generous. You refuse to give to the things that God cares about. And you refuse to, or to sacrifice your own needs for the needs of another because you need more and more money to find security. And we don't find security in God, but instead in how large our bank accounts are. I'll give one more example. I could do this all day. 
Want me to keep going? All right, so one more. Comfort is a gift from God. I like comfort, right? We all want to be comfortable. It's not like we want to be just purposefully uncomfortable, right? But part, and part of the Holy Spirit's job is to comfort us when we're afflicted, right? So, so God is not opposed to comfort. God himself, he set up the Sabbath, which if you're not doing it yet, you should practice it, right? It's one day in seven where you stop and rest and delight and worship. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. God uses it to comfort us and to give us rest. It's a day of rest and comfort in a world of hurry and anxiety, right? That God wants to comfort us. And when Jesus is Lord, we can rest and find comfort in the Lord in a healthy, life-giving way. But when Jesus is not Lord, comfort becomes an idol, and we refuse to do anything that, that can make us uncomfortable. And we neglect God's calling on our lives. We, we, we don't do what God calls us to do. We refuse to do anything that, that requires faith or risk. If there's any risk involved, I'm out, right? We say, I'm not gonna do anything that could cause me to be uncomfortable. I could go on and on. The point is, the world where Jesus isn't Lord is not from God. And this is the first reason we should not love the world. Okay, the second reason why we shouldn't love the world is found in verse 17. It says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If that's not enough motivation, I don't know what is. If you do the will of God, you abide forever. But the world is passing away along with all of its desires. It's going away. Simply put, we should not love the world because, or because the world where Jesus isn't Lord is passing away. Okay, while Jesus will bring heaven and earth together and usher in a renewed world at the end of the day, uh, this world as it currently stands is going to pass away. In the world where evil and sin and the devil wreak havoc on us, it's gonna fade. Uh, James 4 says it this way, or James says it this way in James 4. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Okay, we shouldn't love the world where Jesus isn't Lord yet because it's only temporary. It's going to fade. And whenever you serve an idol, whenever we serve an idol, we are wasting our lives. We are wasting them. We are squandering them at the feet of false gods. Is there an idol in your life? Is there an idol? Is there something that fights for the top spot in your heart? It could be an endless amount of things. It could be needing to be right. It could be others' approval of you. It could be achievement or security or money. It could be your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse or a family member. It could be your political party. It could be entertainment. I think for me, there's been several things that have fought for the top spot in my life and I'm still fighting against things. But one thing I think of is when we planted the church, an idol that just began to really rear its head in my life was this idol of respect and approval. Before this, I had relative ministry success on the campus of you and I as a college pastor, and I really found my identity in that. You know, people respected me for what we were doing on the campus. And when I started telling people that God had called us to plant a church in a city that's full of churches, there's lots of big ones too in Cedar Falls, and to do it during a global pandemic, a lot of people did not take me seriously. They're like, how old are you? 27? You're starting a church called Scent? What's a scent? You're talking about a penny. Are you talking about a smell? No, scent. Like we're sent out by God to love the ones. Or, okay. 
I remember so many faces that just looked at me like I was silly. And there, in this respect that I so craved, it was elusive. And it caused me to be wonky, to get weird, because my idol was being threatened. And not just that, but you know, once we planted the church, a lot of people had a lot of opinions about the way we should do things, especially in 2020. Oh man, the stuff I got to deal with in my first couple months of being a pastor. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing. So to navigate this, you're gonna have to ask someone else. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so the first two years of Sent Church, I felt like the Lord put me on an operating table. Like he was doing surgery on my heart. He's just pulling that idol out. And my grubby little paws are trying to stop him at times. Like, no, I need to be respected. I need to be approved of. He's like, no, you don't. No, that's not gonna bring you the satisfaction that you think it will bring you. And I'm not, like, I'm not gonna pretend that I've arrived, right? Like, I'm sure I still struggle with that idol to an extent, but I really do believe that the Lord has brought deliverance in my life. And my life is just way better now. I love all of you, but I don't care as much about what you think. I just don't. And actually, I think I lead better because of that. Right? I'm not worrying about what other people think all the time, and I have a lot more joy and peace. Okay, so the question for you is, what's your idol? Okay, we all have something that fights to be an idol. And as you think about that idol, what is it about that thing that causes you to want to worship it? Okay, so why do you want to worship that thing? Or more generally, why do we worship idols? I think we get a clue in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well, and he has this fascinating conversation with her. If you haven't seen The Chosen, you should watch The Chosen and watch this scene, okay? So it'll give a lot more color to, the, or to what I'm trying to tell you here. But, but the point is, she had already had five husbands at the time that she met Jesus, and she had given herself over to the idol of sex and relationships, obviously, right? And she thought that they could give her life. Okay, when husbands one through four didn't work, she got husband five. And then when he didn't work, she, she was with another man. And she kept going back to the same idol for satisfaction. She kept sacrificing at the altar of that idol, thinking it would bring her joy in life. She worshiped that idol because she thought it could satisfy this deep longing in her heart. And that's why we worship idols. We worship idols because we think they can satisfy us. We think they have some life within them. But for the woman at the well, it kept coming up empty. And she was tired and thirsty spiritually, not just physically for, or for water in the well, but spiritually. It could not quench her thirst for this deep spiritual satisfaction. And she needed something more. She needed the one true living God. And since they were at a well, Jesus was able to make a great illustration. It says this in, in John 4, 13 through 14. It says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, and the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, so Jesus, he's making the point uh, that the things of this world, whether it be sex and relationships or physical water or something else, they cannot satisfy us eternally. But he could. Jesus could satisfy the longings of her heart. And when she encountered Jesus, she found or she found what her heart was most desperate for. She found what her heart had been longing for in those five husbands. She found uh, the living water that does not run dry. And this is the key to getting free of idols. If you wanna get free, you gotta taste the living water that is Jesus the Messiah. And we need to taste and see that he is good. He is so much better than anything this world could ever offer us. And this is how our worship becomes stronger than our idolatry. 
The thing we need to get is idols cannot satisfy us. They cannot deliver on what they promise. They cannot bring us life. Only Jesus can do that. I love what King David said in Psalm 63. When he penned these words, get this, he's on the run from the king of Israel, right? His life is being threatened. He is afraid and scared. And what he longs for is being in God's presence. He, he writes these words to God in that context. In verse two, it says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life and my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. He praised God because God's love was better than life itself. In other words, he worshiped God and was free of idols because he realized just how good God was. His love was better than life itself. So this is the key. We worship Jesus and we get free of idols when we realize that his love, that he alone satisfies. He is the source of satisfaction, Jesus Christ if we wanna live lives of sold out worship to Jesus, we gotta get a glimpse of how good he is. And we must taste the satisfaction that he offers us. We must experience his life-giving love. And the place, we, or the place we most clearly see that is on the cross, when he gave up his life for our sins. He died in our place. While each of us have sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory, Jesus gave up his life. He paid for every single sin we would commit and then he rose up from the dead, declaring deaths and hell and the grave defeated. All because he loves us. He's just that good. He's just that good. Okay, the way out of idolatry is falling more in love with Jesus. It's being more satisfied in him. You gotta drink that water. And you gotta go to that well, right? That, you know, the well of satisfaction, the spiritual well of satisfaction. Okay, so... Okay, with that in mind, the question remains, how do we do that? How do we go to the well? How do we fall more in love with Jesus? Some of you have been trying for decades, and you're like, I just don't love him that much. Like, you, like you believe uh, the intellectual truths of Christianity, you are Christian, you're gonna be saved, all that, but, but if you're honest, your, your love is just cold for Jesus. How do we get to a point where we consistently see his goodness and want to worship him? Here's the thing, we wouldn't need revival if we were a walking revival. Right? I wanna be constantly in a state of revival right? because I'm constantly tasting and seeing that he's good. I don't need like, some big thing to happen in the culture or in the church because I'm a walking revival. I'm a ball of fire for Jesus because I'm consistently drinking the water that he offers. How do we do that? How do we satisfy ourselves in him? Well, let me answer this by drawing a picture. Okay, since we're talking about wells, uh, let's stick with the water imagery. Okay, so I believe that God's love is like water flowing out of a eternal faucet that just, or it never stops running, it never runs out. It's just flowing out of this faucet. It's, it's overflowing, it's always running. In Romans five, it tells us that the Holy Spirit pours the, or pours the love of God into Christ followers. If we want our worship to be stronger than idolatry, we have to get under the faucet, or we have to get under the faucet of his love. Okay, so the way to grow in our worship to Jesus is not to behave, right? Although you should behave if you love him. Like, you, like your life will look better as you love him, right? But, but the key to getting there, or, or the key to actually loving God is not just behaving, right? It, it's not being more religious, but it's to get under this faucet of God's love and allow it to drench you. And we get a glimpse of this in Psalm 63. Back in verse two, what did David say? He said, so I have looked upon you 
in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Okay, so David knew that God's love was better than life, and he was satisfied in him because he had beheld his power. He had beheld his glory. He had taken the time to just look at Jesus. When I, well, God for him, but God is Jesus. Anyways, he didn't know that. And to marvel at God. As a shepherd boy, he spent countless days out in the field by himself with God. As a musician, he had penned songs to God, and now these largely make up our psalm book in the Bible. And when he was on the run from Saul, he leaned not on his own understanding, but on God. He said, I'm gonna trust in you, not in chariots, not in my own strength. Even when he had the chance to kill Saul, he didn't do it because he trusted God. He, he taught his heart uh, to lean on God in those moments. He beheld God in the midst of the struggle. He lived a life of beholding God. And this beholding, it helped him to be satisfied in him. It helped him to realize that God's love was truly better than life. If we wanna be satisfied in Jesus, we must gaze at him And when we gaze at Jesus, we encounter him and realize that he is the source of life. And we find all that we need in him. But we're too busy staring at this thing to stare at Jesus. Constantly. And then when we're done doing that, we turn on our TV and binge another show. And then we say, oh, I don't know why I don't love God more. Duh, I'm sorry, but... Guys, what are you looking at? Okay, so the question remains, how do we gaze at him? Well, we gaze at Jesus through spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines, if you don't know what those are, they're habits or practices that help us connect to God. So these include things like Bible reading, in meditation, just, you know, just meditating on a verse. It includes Sabbathing, prayer, worship, tithing and generosity, a silence and solitude, participating in Christian community, serving other people. I could go on and on. Like, there's numerous habits or practices that can help you connect to God. Okay, don't be thrown off by the word discipline. These aren't rules to get God to love you. Right? That's why some of us have it wrong. We're like, if I read my Bible today, he's going to love me a lot. So hurry up and read it as <laughs> fast as possible. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> it's like, did you get anything out of that? <laughs> you read it as fast as you could. <laughs> because we, we, because we got it wrong. We think like it earns us something. Because we could check off our version app and say, bing, got it. Woo! I'm a good Christian today. Right, spiritual disciplines, they are invitations to to look at Jesus, to taste him, to see that he's good. They are habits and practices that can draw us out of the things that that we so easily get bogged down with as modern people and get our eyes, get out of that and get our eyes on Jesus. They don't earn us anything. They don't gain us favor with God, but they are a way to experience his favor. They They are a way to experience his love. They are a way to get under the faucet. Every time you read the Bible, the Bible is living and active. Every time you read it, you are opening yourself up to an encounter if you're paying attention, if you're not just trying to read as fast as you can. Every time you pray, you ask the spirit of the living God to pour his love into your heart. Every time you sit in silence with God 
in solitude. You put the phone in the other room and you sit in silence with him. You give him a chance uh, to speak life-giving and affirming words over you. Over you. you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. I've called you for more. You give God a chance to speak to you in those ways. Every time you tithe, you bring your finances under the lordship of Jesus Christ and you let him provide for you. It's amazing what happens when you bring your finances under God's rule and how he just comes through. Sometimes I feel like he's just trying to show off. He's like, watch me, right? You don't, like God says, I, or God says in Malachi, you cannot give him, right? You cannot give him. And, and when you do this, when you practice this with your finances, it's a discipline. When you do this, it opens yourself up to experience his love. But instead, when you keep all your money for yourself and think you're the provider of your life and you have it all under control, you are blocking God out of your finances and, and you're actually abstaining from the opportunity to experience his love and experience his power and his faithfulness. Every time you sing songs to God in, in corporate worship, you are reminding yourself of his love for you. And this is why we have times of worship on Sunday. It's not just because that's what churches do. Right? Some of you come in, you're like, when's this over? I don't like this music, and I'm just here for the sermon, or I'm here for going to lunch afterwards with my spouse. Right? But no, we don't just do worship just because it's what you're supposed to do. Instead, we, we put those lyrics on the screen and we declare those songs as an act of defiance against the idols in our culture. We're saying that Jesus is better than life. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. I cast my mind on, on Calvary where Jesus bled and he died for me. Right? We declare who God is. It's an act of defiance to our culture. We are training our hearts to fall in love with Jesus. Man, I'm preaching today. Come on. All right, and if you want more of that, like this is essentially what step two of Activate's about, so I'll leave that for Activate. All right, so uh, the main idea this morning is this. Worship to Jesus can become stronger than idolatry when we realize that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than all the idols in our culture. He's better. I think about, and this is totally off my notes, so if I screw this up, like blame my memory. But I think about, in 1 Samuel, the, uh, the Philistines, they steal the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence. They're like, yeah, we're going to get the Ark of the Covenant. And then God's you know, our presence and blessing won't be with Israel. And they bring it into their land, and they, bring it, or they set it up, and all the idols of their culture kept falling down. They kept falling off the shelf. Right? Because, because God's presence was so strong, those idols fell. Right? That's what we need to see happen in our lives. We need to bring God's presence into our homes. Right? Our homes need to be houses of prayer. Into our hearts. Our hearts need to be houses of prayer. Into our church. Right? This needs to be a house of prayer. And let those idols just fall. That's what I'm praying will happen at Saint Church. I'm praying that idols will fall and that people will declare that Jesus is worthy of everything. Right? He's so much better than anything this world could ever bring us. And I pray that even when our lives aren't going the way we want it to, like in Psalm 63, we can pen words like David did. Oh, how I long to look at you. How I long to be in your sanctuary. Your steadfast love is better than life, and so my lips will praise you, despite the fact that the king is trying to kill me. Right? I'm praising you because your love is better than life. A, a people who are not dictated by circumstance, but by God's goodness. I'm praying for that here at Saint Church.
more sermon left. I'm trying to decide whether to give it or not. I'll just share one story, and then we're going to close because I know we're we're running short on time. But so so Jonathan Griffin over here on the drums. You guys know John. He's a good guy, right? Let's give John a round of applause. All right, so John was actually the first student that I met at UNI. Well, I already knew him, but, but the first student I invited to Chi Alpha. I showed up at his dorm, and he had, like, this headset on, this video game headset. He had, like, three or three monitors around. He's, like, gaming hard. Like, I never met a gamer like him at that point. And, and he told me last night, I asked him, how much did you play video games back then? He said he played for eight hours a day. All right, eight hours of video games. So anyways, John, we're not harping on you. We... I've not been there, but other people have, okay, so, <laughs> but, so, so anyways, uh, so John comes to Chi Alpha, the first service, you know, wasn't really a follower of Jesus at this point, and, and God did something in his heart, and afterwards, John told me that there's just a moment in the service where he realized that this is my life now, like, this is my life, like, Jesus, he's my life, and he, he gave his life to Jesus, and I had no idea that he played that, or played all those hours of video games, but at some point during the year, he told me, he said, hey, I went ahead and, and I took my counsels home and I left them at home because I need to focus on Jesus, right? I need to focus on him and put him first. It, you know, video games aren't bad. Eight hours, video games is bad. I'm just gonna say it, it's bad. So, but, but video games aren't bad in of themselves, right? They're not inherently wrong. I don't know if they're wise, but they're not inherently wrong. But, but the love of God was so wooing John's heart that he, that he wasn't doing to earn something. He just wanted to get the distraction out. And God used John so powerfully on the campus of you and I, right? John has raised up disciples who have made other disciples. There's gotta be at least 20 or 30 guys that, that point themselves back to John's discipleship, right? And many of the Chi Alpha Smart players now, they, they come from John's family tree, right? So it's incredible what God did when John was willing to offer that up. So, so the point is, I, I just wanna ask you this question. Do you want your life to matter? Do you want your life to matter? If you want it to matter, I assure you, spending your life I'm trying to make more money. I'm trying to have as many sexual encounters as possible. On, on watching as much sports as humanly possible. On spending all your money on stuff, playing video games, like, like binge watching every new series that comes out. I, I assure you that if you spend your life in that way, it will not matter. It will not matter at all. And you'll be like, not even a footnote in history. No one will remember you. But if you pour your life out for King Jesus, if you say that he is first, he is primary, nothing will come between me and him, or come between me and him. If you make him first, your life will count. You will, or you will live a life of worship that then leads to, to people encountering Jesus. And then those people going and helping other people encounter Jesus. And more and more people will get to be in the new heavens and the new earth because you decided not to live for trivial things. That's the call this morning. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet all across this room. History belongs to people, to men and women, who are consumed with passion and love for God. History belongs to those who let Jesus become the, the primary desire of their hearts. And my prayer is that Sent Church would be a church where we tear down the shrines that, that we've built and we ask Jesus to be supreme. 
And my prayer is that our church would be a church where we don't just settle for being with Jesus on Sundays, but, but instead we have houses of prayer in our hearts and homes throughout the week. We are, are constantly with the Father. We are constantly communing with him. My prayer for our church is we would be a church that just burns with love for Jesus. Burns. All right, so let's pray. Let's, let's bring the lights down. I'm just going to respond with some prayer. So Jesus, right now, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself. I pray that you would become the all-consuming fire of our hearts, the passion of our hearts. So Lord, I pray that all the idols we've set up would fall. God, the idol of money and success would fall. God, the idol of family, a very good thing, would fall. Lord, the idol of popularity and fame and fortune would fall at your feet. yourself to us right now. It's Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. Pour God's love into our hearts like Romans 5, 5 says you do. Spirit of God, pour it right now. Pour love into hearts all across this room. Oh, good Lord, show us that you are so much better. God, you're so much better. just a symbol, but a living reality of the fact that uh, the Son of God gave up his life for us. I pray that that would be real to us, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you. All right, in this posture of prayer, if God's speaking, can you come to the altar just right now? I just believe there's no better way to respond as we're talking about idols, we're talking about making Jesus first than, than coming to the altar and saying that Jesus is first. So can you come right now? Just come as an act of, of defiance against the culture, as an act of saying, Jesus is first, or, or maybe you need God to pour his love into your heart. Like, you're just like, if you're honest, your love is just really cold for him, and you need him just to like dump love on you. I believe that God can do that this morning. Maybe you're tired and you're in your rear. You've been doing a lot of church things, a lot of religious things, but but if you're honest, you're just tired. And I pray just right now that, that the love of God would bring you rest. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, come to the altar as well. All right, so I'm just going to pray just one more time, and then we're going to respond in worship and prayer. So, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing. I pray for all these hearts at the altar that you would just dump love on them. For every heart in this room, dump love. Lord, I pray that, that our culture, that our church would, would say, hey, say, hey, you are first. You come before everything else. God, we love you. We praise you. Have your way in these last moments of the service. In Jesus' mighty name.